Amen. All right, let's pray together. Lord, truly your grace is greater than all of our sin. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather together each week and sing to you and to hear each other singing is a great encouragement to us, Lord, as those who have been redeemed. Lord, we thank you for gathering us together. We pray that you would be glorified in our worship this morning. We know that other churches are meeting as well, and we lift them up, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for Big Springs Baptist Church, Lord, that you would be with them, that you would uh, work amongst them, that you would bring many uh, to the, uh, the faith, Lord, through the faithful proclamation of that church and their community. Lord, work in them, we pray. We also lift up sister churches, Lord, within uh, the Reformed Baptist Network. We think of Cornerstone Church in Mesa, Arizona, that you would be with them, that you would strengthen them, that you would uh, give them what they need, that they would trust you, uh, that your grace would be sufficient for them uh, in all that you have on their plate. So, Lord, we thank you for um, what you're doing in and through the network. We uh, lift these churches to you. Father, we know that the church is being persecuted in many places, um, including um, here in our own country. Uh, Lord, we know that we live uh, amongst an uh, unsaved um, world and that we are therefore persecuted as your people. And we pray that, Lord, you would give strength to those in foreign lands that bear much more persecution than we do. Uh, we lift up the church in Iraq this morning, that you would be with them as they stand faithfully uh, as Christians uh, in a Muslim world. And Lord, we pray that you would draw many to faith in Christ, that you would help them uh, to stand firm, uh, whether they are experiencing light persecution in the, the issue of uh, foul words against them or whether they have been imprisoned or even faced death. We ask that you would be with them. Father, we lift up those who have never heard of your gospel. We lift up the Banak people of Indonesia, that you would be with them this morning, that you would continue to send missionaries their direction, that they might hear of the gospel. Lord, we know that you will call from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and so we ask that you would bring forth uh, fruit from those people groups, Lord, um, in the years ahead. Father, we lift up the troubled places in our world that are no doubt on our mind. We think of uh, East Africa, Sudan, and Ethiopia. We think of the war in Ukraine, Lord, that you would continue to do your work there. Uh, we can't understand all that you're doing, but we pray uh, that your gospel would go forth, that you'd be with the church in Ukraine and the church in Russia, that you would strengthen them, that the gospel would go forth uh, even in uh, a tumultuous time. Father, we pray for our governing leaders that you give them wisdom in all these things. Father, we pray for refugees in various places, that you would have mercy upon them. Father, for our military, uh, we also pray for those that are grieving. Uh, we grieve with um, uh, Restoration Church here in our community that lost one of their young men uh, in a lawnmower accident. Uh, Tim Peterson, that you would be with that family, Lord, as they grieve. Um, Lord, that you would uh, bind up uh, their hearts um, and, Lord, encourage them, we pray. We thank you for your work in um, Kaylee and Ethan as well as they grieve um, Kaylee's maternal grandmother as she passed away this week. Uh, thank you for um, helping them and aiding the family in their grief, Lord, that you would encourage them. Father, we pray for our expectant mothers. We think of Ellie and Sarah, that you would continue uh, to be with them 
Uh, we also think of Caitlin Miller, Lord, in the homeschool group as well, and our other uh, relationships in this community for those that are expecting that you would be with them, that their uh, pregnancies would be healthy and come to full term, and uh, Lord, that there would be no complications, we pray. We thank you for the blessing of children, and we thank you uh, that you have made these wombs fruitful to your glory. Father, we continue to pray for those who are healing. Uh, we think of Danny Richardson uh, continually and, and Lisa uh, Lemire as she uh, heals from her um, cancer uh, um, surgery. Lord, we uh, continue to pray for uh, Dean Mundy, Lord, with uh, Bell's palsy, that you would uh, bring that to resolution, that he could uh, gain strength again to go about his work. Uh, Father, we think of uh, John Cordy as well in his battle with cancer, as well as Christina, Lord, that you would strengthen her. Thank you that uh, this port was able to be put in, and we pray you would give her grace, Lord, as she uh, moves forward with um, treatment, Lord, that you would uh, help us as a congregation to love them well and serve them in any way, shape, or form that we can, Lord. Uh, Father, we um, lift up um, Kitty, too. We thank you for her improvement, and we pray for a complete healing, Lord, of this clavicle bone and we ask for your help there. Father, we uh, thank you for uh, your grace um, for the Schwartz family too, as uh, Amy's uh, sister, uh, Kelsey, Lord, is uh, suffering with cancer as well. So we lift them to you, Lord, and ask that you would surround them with your kindness and your grace um, in these hard days. Father, for uh, missionary Trevor Johnson and his family, that you would bring resolution to those situations, and uh, Lord, that you would give him great strength um, and bringing him uh, to you, and Father, that you would be with the family, Lord, as they uh, work through many different trials. Father, we thank you for uh, Christ alone uh, down in Wilkesboro. We thank you for this plant. We thank you for their increased attendance in recent days that... Uh, uh, we received word that uh, they had 40 in attendance last week, and we praise you for that, Lord, um, and we thank you for what you're doing there. We pray that you would give strength to Pastor Tim as he preaches, as his foot continues to heal, and he trusts you uh, with his um, ongoing heart issues, that you would um, give wisdom to him and, and the doctors as well. Lord, we pray that you would raise up leaders for uh, both Christ alone and for uh, the gathering, Lord, that you would uh, appoint men to um, the eldership that we might continue the work that you've called us to, Lord, and we do that with great expectation about what you will do. Father, finally, would you help us now as we uh, go into a time of studying your word, would you help us to not just understand it uh, and even interpret it uh, with the help of your Holy Spirit, but to apply it uh, to our lives, that you might be glorified and that we might be satisfied in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, welcome. We are glad to uh, see your faces here this morning. I want to thank the congregation for the uh, opportunity for Bonnie and I to get away. Uh, this last week, we had a wonderful time celebrating our 20 years of marriage. We thank God for you, and it blesses my heart when uh, everything just functions great, um, even in my absence as it ought to. And we uh, are thankful for Nathan using his gifts to bless his congregation, and uh, we're thankful for uh, our deacons and how they serve. We're uh, thankful for Brandon and in helping lead the service last week as well. So uh, we're just grateful to God for uh, those men that he has given uh, this congregation amongst um, those who serve in other places from the worship team all the way 
to the nursery. And so we're thankful for all that God is uh, doing there. Uh, as promised, I want to read a uh, few of the children's bulletins. I am uh, very behind and the stack is growing. And um, so I'm doing thematic ones, uh, but trying to catch up from our time in Genesis. But they're all somewhat related, so this will help us. Uh, one of the children wrote, this goes back to uh, Genesis 8, uh, one that I'm um, catching up on is uh, concerning uh, what is a clean animal? And that's a great question. In fact, we've seen that multiple times in Genesis that we talk about clean and unclean animals. And that's not just talking about um, animals that get dirty. It's talking about clean before God, that God uh, says what animals are clean and which ones are unclean. Now, we don't have the details of that in the early parts of Genesis, but as the Mosaic law comes into uh, fruition in the book of Exodus, we see that God clearly defines that which is a clean animal and that which is unclean. Now, connections to Genesis, remember that when the flood happened, that God brought extra animals that were clean in preparation for that which would be the sacrificial system. So it's interesting to see that that which God requires he supplies. So it's, it's awesome to see that. But that's a great question about what is a clean animal as opposed to what is not. And if you want a detailed list, um, I can uh, point that out to you uh, in the book of Leviticus. And it gives an actual definition, which we don't have time to read through that whole list, but it's there. So it's, it's very good. Uh, second question here is why uh, two pairs of clean animals were given, and that's related to this other question, and that was because there would be a need for a greater amount of clean animals because they would be sacrificed as opposed to the unclean that were also spared on the ark. And so Noah made that sacrifice um, after the flood, as did uh, further generations of God's people, as we'll see going on in Genesis. So that's a great question that was connected to that same one. And then lastly, um, is a question going back to Genesis 11 uh, that I failed to answer, which is how tall was the Tower of Babel? Well, that's a great question. Well, we don't actually know, but their goal, as we saw in Genesis 11, was to build a tower that would reach the heavens. So we know that modern-day skyscrapers are exceedingly tall, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of feet tall, passing even the 1,000-foot mark even these days. But it's very interesting that we do not have the answer to how tall the Tower of Babel was. But we can assume that the ancient construction of the Tower of Babel uh, would have some of the same uh, things available to them that even the Egyptians had in building the Great Pyramids that have lasted thousands of years. So that's a great question. But uh, no doubt that this tower was quite significant as far as the human ingenuity at that time. And we know that God himself says he would go down to see what they were doing. So great imagery there of the great uh, Tower of Babel. So great question, uh, children. Thank you for your notes, your encouragement, your prayers uh, that you put in there. I read them all. So thank you for that. want to encourage you to keep uh, doing so. All right. Well, with all of that out of the way, would you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18? Genesis chapter 18. We consider um, more on our theme here in Genesis, and would you stand with me as we read God's Word? We'll be reading verses 22 through the end of the chapter, in verse 33. This is God's Word. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. 
But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abram drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spirit for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it that from, from you shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abram answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak again, but this once. Suppose there are 10 found there. And he answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. And when he had finished speaking to Abram, and Abram returned to his place. This ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, quite a text before us this morning. Have you ever been at awe of the Lord's grace in your life? that moment when you realize that God has shown mercy upon you. And so we see here in the context of our study with Abraham that God has called him into covenant and he has revealed bits and pieces of this great covenant to him over the last several chapters, which encompassed several years, just over a decade at this point. And as Nathan preached last week, we saw that God himself appears to Abram and to Sarah with these other two men. Now, something that we need to remember from last week's text is that, that when these men speak, they speak as one. They're seen as one. Abraham responds to them as one. And so the Lord is in their midst, and we will see more defined here how the Lord is working amongst them and how he is seeking to bring comfort even to Sarah. And we saw in the text last week that Sarah laughed concerning it. Abram also laughed in previous chapters, but this was a disbelief right in front of the Lord revealing to Abraham that this time next year, Sarah would uh, give birth to a son, the promised son. And so that conversation ensues but there was only one there was two purposes but we only saw one last week of why this visitation happened we see not only the great meal and communion that these two uh, parties had but we know that in the context of this covenant 
that there was another reason for the Lord's visit with them, and that was to bring judgment upon Sodom, Gomorrah, and the surrounding uh, towns and villages. It actually almost takes the breath out of the passage that as we read last week, that the Lord says in verse 17 of chapter 18, shall I hide from Abram what I am about to do? Seeing that Abram shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abram what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And so as we looked at this last week, we consider what the Lord is doing. We realize that God is giving Abraham information that the rest of the world does not know. Isn't that not true for the child of God? Isn't it true that the revelation of Christ and his word and his gospel has opened our eyes? God has opened our eyes to it. In fact, we know that it's a work of the Holy Spirit to interpret the scriptures to us. We can understand them, but with the human mind, we cannot grasp all that is here without his help and without his aid. It is an inspired book. It is God-breathed. And we see here that God's revelation to those he has saved is not just one for information, but also understanding in the ways of God. In fact, you could see Abram's uh, understanding of the Lord, his theology growing here as he realizes that God is just. He knows he is just. And he appeals to him in that way. And so we're going to look at this text in two points. First of all, we see connected to what we were looking at last week as Nathan walked us through this text is we see an angelic advancement, ultimately for destruction. And then secondly, we hear the appeal of Abraham, or if you will, the divine um, uh, uh, condescending to Abraham to have this conversation concerning the Lord and his mercy. And so when we look at this, we understand several things. First of all, that, that God is bringing judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. If you remember uh, multiple chapters, we looked at this, that God was going to ultimately destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because the cry of their wickedness had come to the Lord. So we see that anticipated in the text of Scripture so we know it's coming, but we just don't know when. I think this flies in contrast to uh, many secular uh, uh, atheists that have read the Old Testament scriptures and have stated things like they see the God of the Old Testament as an angry God who just destroys people. But if we do a careful reading of the text of scripture, even in our study of Noah, did we not see God's patience? Did we need to see not see God's long-suffering and forbearance with that generation? In fact, it was a hundred years before the rain came down that flooded the earth. And the monument to God's salvation, the ark itself, 
was a safe haven for those who took hope in the name of the Lord. Is it not any different when we see the judgment upon the Tower of Babel and now even just generations, a couple hundred years after these events, we see now a great evil represented at Sodom and Gomorrah. And our hearts might go directly to what we'll see in chapter 19 as uh, particular sins that have consequences and other sins don't have as grievous consequences, but all sin is disgusting to our Lord. And so we see here that we have a conversation between Abraham and God. At the beginning, though, however, we see this connection of thought from chapter earlier in chapter 18 as God is going to go down to see there whether these things have uh, happened. And so we see in verse 22 starting out that so the men, speaking of those that uh, had visited Abraham, turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Two things to note here as we interpret this and look at this. There is a sense that the angelic procession towards judgment is certainly in force and going to happen as it was told Abram. But also there's this sense that the Lord is listening to Abram and Abram was seeking his time. Now, if you look at chapter 19, verse 1, it says the two angels came to Sodom. So the interpretive question is, what happened to the third one? We know that from chapter 18, that Moses, the author of Genesis, makes it clear that there's three that appear. And we know from chapter 19, verse 1, that two of these are angels. Now, the logical assumption here is that the Lord is the third one represented here speaking to Abram. But I don't want us to miss that because I don't necessarily think that is a wrong interpretation, but also to remember from uh, chapter 18 that there's a oneness, there's a completeness to what is happening that God is present even in the midst of these other two messengers of God. In other words, when God is visiting Sodom, uh, he's doing that through these two angels. However, we also know that God was going to visit Gomorrah. Now, that's not in the text uh, of, verse of chapter 19 that we'll look at next week. But we do see that God promised that he would go and visit there. So in that sense, God is making himself known through this plurality of men that are appearing before uh, Abraham. So God is listening to Abram as he seeks to speak here. But I want us to see that because the angelic procession towards judgment is already in play. And that's important for this text of Scripture because we must understand that God in his righteousness and in his judgment has appointed a day that he will bring judgment. Just as in Noah's day, so in the end of time. That we know that God will do this. This is why it's referred to in many places in the Bible as the day of the Lord. And we see here with Sodom and Gomorrah that their days were numbered. So in that, we think that when you look at this in the sense of a human perspective, Abram had special revelation about what was about to happen. It's almost a prophetic sense of what was going to take place, whereas Sodom and Gomorrah did not know what was about to hit them. And they might have looked to it as an act of Mother Nature 
or an accident of some kind, a freak meteor shower, but we see here that God is to be feared, and this was certainly poured out as an act of judgment from heaven upon Sodom and Gomorrah. But this text isn't focusing on the application of that judgment, which we'll see in chapter 19, but we do see this conversation Again, in verse 2 of chapter 18, in verse 9, in verse 10, in verse 13, in verse 14, in verse 16, in verse 17, in verse 19, and in verse 20, it is referring to these men as speaking in great conversation with Abraham and Sarah. And it's this second purpose of God that catches Abraham's attention, perhaps even more so than the great promise that they would receive a child this time next year. But isn't this the context of our relationship with the Lord? In great hope, we have great hope of expectancy in the future, while at the same time, the reality that God is bringing judgment upon an unsaved world that has rejected him. In God's kindness, he has brought Abraham and Sarah into the grace of his covenant. And yet at the same time, there is an unrighteousness that will be judged. And yet God is calling people out from that. It's a very clear distinction that God has between his people and the world. And we know from the text of the scriptures that it's not because inherently in himself, Abram is better than any of these. It was God's grace applied to Abram that we know was by faith that was accounted to him as righteousness. And so the great gospel has been before us as we've seen in the text that God is the one who applies his righteousness to our dear friend here, Abram and Sarah. And we know that all those identified with Abram are also in covenant, as we saw with the covenant of circumcision. But we also will see in this act of judgment that those who are in Abraham's household observe these very same things. And so here in the text, we see an angelic advancement to bring judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. But secondly here, we see another uh, topic, and that is the appeal of Abraham. Notice that these are the same people that God had used Abraham to deliver when the other kings came and raided and took off Lot, his nephew, and all those surrounding him. And remember, God gave grace to the 318 men with Abram to go and really deliver these and bring them back, and everything was accounted for. So it's amazing how God showed kindness to these people through Abram, but he also delivered them. And so we see that Lot is dwelling with a very sinful people. And we know it's a great number of people not just represented in Sodom and Gomorrah, but surrounding communities, suburbs, if you will. And so it's in this very context that God has told Abram what he will do. We saw that in verse 17, that he would not hide from Abram what he was about to do. And what is it that he's uh, revealing to Abram? That judgment is coming. And so look at verse 23. It says that Abram drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What a loaded question. You can hear 
the thoughts of Abram in this text. Now we know that Abram knows that God is just to do just that. But we see here God listening to Abram. And isn't this what he does when he condescends to listen to the thoughts of men? And we know that Abram is not doing this in a prideful way because we'll see his language every time he asks. He is doing this in humility and reverence and knowing who he's speaking to and knowing what he's asking. But several things we need to see here. Abram knew what God was saying when he would bring judgment. This is why he still stood before the Lord in verse 22 as the others departed to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. So his question here, and a great question of faith, is how is it that you will sweep away the righteous and the wicked? Notice Lot isn't even mentioned here, but he has thoughts in his mind that not everyone is deserving of this judgment. Is, are they? Suppose, he says, there are 50 righteous in the city. Now, notice something there. We're not talking about a small village. Abram knows something in asking this question. He knows that these cities are rotten to the core because he starts at 50. I don't know if you ever looked at this text before, but why not start at 20,000? God, if there's 20,000 that are righteous, would you spare the 50,000? Just assuming that maybe there was that many people, we don't really know. But he starts at 50. He knows the wickedness of this people. And yet he says, would you show mercy upon them for those 50? God, in his kindness, answers him with, well, uh, before he answers, so he says, suppose that there are 50 righteous, will you then sweep away the place and not spare for the 50 righteous who are in it? In other words, Lord, would you truly just sweep away the righteous and the unrighteous together? And we know that Abram knows what righteousness we're talking about. So he says in verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Is this not the cry of all of God's people that dwell amongst a people of unclean lips? Is this not the cry that we would say, Lord, how is it that you are going to show your kindness to your people? How are you going to fulfill your very covenant while at the same time destroy the wicked? Psalm 73 speaks of the same thing. David asked the same question. Why is it that the wicked seem to fare, Lord, and I, your servant, am suffering? But for the Christian, as we've seen before, suffering is temporary. Even when we suffer things because we live in a sinful world and they're not directly tied to our own sin, we also suffer, if it will, if you will, with the unrighteous. We live in a fallen world. We are overtaken by the things that overtake even uh, unsaved people. And so Paul asks the same question. Turn over to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. It's the cry of the greatest need of mankind. And that is to be justified before the living God. And the fact that we see that as the greatest need of mankind presupposes that we are not right 
with a very holy God. And so we see in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 5, Paul argues this about God's righteousness being upheld. He says, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us of saying, their condemnation is just. And for time's sake, we don't have time to look at the rest of chapter 3, but Paul builds his case that no one is righteous. In other words, we are all deserving of judgment, Jew and Gentile. And yet at the same time, God is just in what he brings circumstantially into the lives of his children. And this is exactly what's happening in the context of Abram here, singing divine judgment, but also sweet divine grace. They just received word that they're going to have a promised child in their very old age. And then in the next statement, that judgment is coming to some neighbors of theirs. Isn't this the greatness of God's justice before us? And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We are recipients of his grace, and it seems like it's unfair, but the question is, why would God show grace to any of us? And we see that in the context of the scriptures. This is a very humbling thing to Abram, that he would show grace upon him, and so he questions the Almighty. He says, Lord, would you not spare even if 50 were left? And God responds to him here in doing what is just in verse 26. And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And then now we see the repetition. Six times Abram returns to this question. And with each time, notice that he's subtracting a few. He starts with 45. So he just subtracts five. And then he'll start, we'll see him going by 10. And so look at what he says. Let's read this in one chunk so we can understand it. That Abram answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. You see his humility there again, that he's speaking to this God in light of his decisive judgment. And notice what he says. Not only has he undertaken to speak to the Lord, but he says, I am but dust and ashes. In just a few moments, the next day, Sodom and Gomorrah would be just that, dust and ashes. What is Abram saying here? He's acknowledging that he is no greater. He is just a recipient of God's grace, but he has a question for the divine authority of what is going to take place. And he says, now, suppose five of the 50 are lacking. Will you destroy it for the lack of five? And so God says, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. A third time, Abram goes to him. And then he spoke to him and said, suppose there's 40 found there. And God again answers, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. In other words, we hear a resounding, yes, Abram, yes, Abram, I will spare if I find those there. 
Verse 30, then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again. He realizes that he's, he's pushing his, his, uh, his reverence here towards the Lord and asking him of these things. And he says, suppose there's 30 found here. And he answered, I will not do it even if there's 30 found here. There, rather. And then verse 31, the fifth time, he said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. There's that line again. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak again but this once. And so he's bringing a conclusion to his appeal. And he says, suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Now it's interesting to note that we know that Lot is there. We know that Lot has a wife, and we know that he has two daughters. So there's four there that are underneath. Ultimately, we'll see the protection of God, um, and we'll see the, the fate of Lot's wife in chapter 19. But it's interesting here that Abram stops at 10. The answer has been given to Abram. Abram knows that this place is surely devoted to destruction and evil has completely encompassed everything that these people do. And that context is important because while we're not in chapter 19 this morning, when we get there, it's important to understand that context about how far degraded and depraved these people had become. And so we'll see that again, that God's justice is being displayed before us. And Abram is seeing God's justice displayed before him in a way that humbled him, that God had shown mercy to him. As the scriptures say, I will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy, and I will show compassion on whom I will have compassion. He spoke the same to Moses and to all of his servants. In fact, it was a call to repentance in each place. The Lord called himself during Jesus' ministry, called many to repentance and to look to Christ by faith in what he would accomplish. And so we see the wrapping up of this in verse 32, that God would spare even if there were 10. And the Lord went his way, it says, and when he had finished speaking to Abram, and Abram returned to his place. We really don't see of Abraham until chapter 19 when he sees the results of the judgment that pour out upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Great text before us, a great challenge before us. What in the world are we to make of such a text? How is it that we are to apply this? Well, considering the appeals that we see here that um, Abram uh, made, we hear the um, commentary of John Calvin on this. He says, this method of appeal would not always avail among earthly judges who are sometimes deceived by error or perverted by fever or inflamed with hatred or corrupted by gifts or misled by other means to acts of injustice. But since God, to whom it naturally belongs to judge the world, is liable to none of these evils, it follows that he can no more be drawn aside from equity when he can, just as he could not deny himself to be God. What is Calvin saying there? That God is going to 
put forth his judgment and he will do it justly just as much as he cannot deny himself being God. It is in God's hands to judge. Now that's uncomfortable language, is it not? In fact, we live in a day that does not want to speak of God's judgment. Although the scriptures speak very loudly of his judgment, his offense at mankind and their constant pouring forth foul things into their world, his world that he has created, and that we have, like sheep, gone astray, everyone to his own way. And we are perverse, for we have been made in the image of God, and yet we distort that with every sinful act, thought, and action. Has not God shown mercy in calling us to himself? So two applications, I think, are very clear from this text of Scripture. First of all, one to Christians, because I think we see this in the midst of God's people here with Abram. And then secondly, a warning to the unrighteous, a warning to those who don't have the righteousness of Christ applied to their account. And it's a fearful thing, for we are on the doorsteps of seeing Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed. And so my encouragement to us as believers, first of all, do we await God's judgment upon the wicked in the way that Jonah watched for the judgment of the Ninevites, which God himself challenged Jonah concerning the death of the wicked? Do we, as we look at the sinful world, do we wait for the fires of heaven to fall upon unsaved people with a smirk on our face, knowing that we are safe and sound in the context of his mercy? We know from this text that Abram was concerned about those who were about to receive judgment. We see this in the life of Moses, that Moses too asked the Lord when in his anger he said, I will wipe away these people from the face of the earth and restart with you, Moses. And Moses says, not so, Lord. And he appeals to God's mercy that God would show grace, that God in his kindness would use and be patient with his people over 40 years in the desert and that he would deliver this people into the land of Canaan. And as we know, God's judgment is that generation would not see the land, but he would bring the next generation in. Still, God's mercy. Consider the heart of the Apostle Paul. Turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, Paul, in great anguish, wanted his people to know Christ. They had been entrusted with the very truths of God, the very revelation of God, and they were, if as it were, just a doorstep away from salvation, and yet they were unsaved. And Paul says it this way in chapter 9, starting in verse 1 of Romans. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all and blessed forever. Amen. And so he says, 
In verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac your offspring shall be named. This means, he says in verse 8, that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born, he had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger because it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Wow. Good theology helps us to understand both judgment and mercy. In fact, proper theology drives proper missiology as we take the gospel to those who have not yet heard. We know that the purpose of God in election is to save a people for himself, and we're confident that he will do that. But we also see people like Abraham and Moses and Paul saying, Oh God, will you judge all of these? Will you not save some? And so we see the very urgency represented in the questions of God's saved people. Don't we take this for granted many times as we look at what is happening in our world, this sense of urgency to see others here? I think this is important for us because I will deal with the other side of this in just a moment. But if we have lost our ability for concern over those who are under the very judgment of God this hour, and we do not share the same weeping of such a coming judgment, is that not have a great effect on our urgency of taking the message? Again, a gospel that says tomorrow, you've probably heard, is the devil's gospel. We will wait to share. Well, Abram took it upon himself to go to the Almighty. Now, we knew that God's purpose is going to fulfill, but notice what's going on in Abram's human heart. We see his humanness here. He doesn't know what God is going to do. We don't know all he's going to accomplish through the promise of Isaac, but he does know that it's redemptive in nature. Why? Because he's experienced it. God took him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He showed him tremendous kindnesses. And now they're expecting a son in just under a year, and he's 100 years old. Don't tell me that the Christian life is not exciting. But at the same time, there's this heaviness that we have a relationship with a thrice holy God. And so in the context of this, he is calling them to remember. Remember what God has done and is doing in his providence. And so while we can be thankful that God has in his kindness saved us, is it not a blessing to hear that through those that have shared it with us? And so while we look at this text, it should be an awe to us. And we'll see this in chapter 19 as Abram sees the fires of Sodom and Gomorrah in the valley. I tell you, based upon the scriptures, the lake of fire that's described 
in the book of Revelation should cause us to tremble even though we understand as God's people we are not going there. The greatness of God, why? It teaches us something about God's holy character. Sodom and Gomorrah are a mere campfire waiting compared to what the judgment of the world looks like in our future. And so, while we are drawn heavenward to praise our great God in showing us great mercy and kindness, he is still using us as a conduit of his mercy to those who have not yet heard. And that is an awesome fact. It's an exciting fact that he would take his great gospel, put it on our lips, and yet we preach the gospel, and through his power of the Holy Spirit, he regenerates people. That is exciting to see that he is able to pluck some from the flames. And that's exactly what Abram was questioning, and the answer was no. And so we trust a sovereign God in the preaching of the gospel. This is great for us missionally because we know that God is going to use his word. We do that by faith. We do that with great assurance. We know that he will accomplish that. But we almost all the time do not know how this will take place. The faithfulness comes in delivering the message, in sharing it, and we leave the results to the Lord. So we see that one side. Are we awaiting God's judgment upon the wicked with a smirk on our face? Or... On the other hand, are we thinking about God's great providence in our lives? Do we see his working of providence and it humble us? The best way to illustrate this is something that many of us have forgotten, even though it was in recent history. And I've mentioned this before. I've used this as an illustration. But it made such an indelible mark on my memory that the Lord often brings it to mind. The day after Christmas in 2004, a great tsunami happened after a great earthquake in the Indian Basin, and 227,898 people died within a 24-hour period, swept off the face of this earth, and that was in our lifetime. Even you youngest ones here that were born in 2004 or later, that happened in your lifetime. In fact, if you even Google this, you can read that it's one of the worst human disasters in recorded history. Now, we know there was greater disasters than the worldwide flood. You just read Genesis 9. But there's a, our minds often go to things like uh, the Twin Towers in 2001 and, and other things like that. But that pales in comparison with the great swath of people who are swept off the land. And most of those countries have not heard the gospel in, in great uh, numbers, swept off the world. And you say, well, preacher, are you saying that God sent that tsunami? Well, when we look at the scriptures, we see that God is sovereign over all creation. Even, even the horrible things that have happened to mankind, even the disciples when they saw and heard of this great tragedy of a, the Tower of Siloam falling and killing people, they said, was it because of their sin? What, why is this that happened? And Jesus' response to them is that they ought to repent. In other words, God allows providential things to come into our lives. And as with Abram and so with us, when we see God's working in the world, it should humble us. Why not us? I still remember looking at Time Magazine and on the front cover in, at the beginning of the year in 2005, they were just getting reports from Indonesia about that tsunami and there was bodies floating in the water. 
And my question to myself at that moment is, God, you are merciful. I dwell in a land who does not honor you. I dwell amongst a people who are pride in their luxury. And these people, most of them very poor people because they lived along the seashore, were taken off the earth in a very just way because God is God. And yet he has shown great mercy upon thousands. So, has this affected our heart like Abram was? And this precedes the very judgment of God. And we who know that God is bringing a judgment live amongst a people who have no clue that their great party is about to come to an end. And while we are devastated by evil around us, and we pray in a righteous and godly and right manner that God would bring judgment, and that is a right thing, on the other hand, God breeds compassion because we are ones who have received compassion. And so in a world that is completely depraved today, just as much as what we're about to read in chapter 19, let us be aware that while crying for judgment is very biblical, on the other hand, so is having compassion with the gospel that God might save some. And so we see that persistence in prayer is also seen here with Abram in a third way for the righteous. And Abram pleads, Lord, I don't have your knowledge for 50, for 45, for 40, for 30, for 20, for 10. And while we don't know who we're throwing seeds of the gospel to, we trust him and we are left silent at the end, just as Abram was, that judgment is coming. Secondly, those were two believers. Lastly, a point of application. If you've been listening to me, whether online or here in uh, this room, it's very clear that judgment awaits those who do not have the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus. It's a very call to repent. You do not have a tomorrow. God is yet at the door. And you have been shown the very kindness of God that from these scriptures you see God's grace. And yet we're not to chapter 19 yet, but there's going to be but dust and ashes left. And you have to feel the weight of your own sin upon your shoulders because no one in this room is able to be righteous without the work and uh, forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why the preaching of the gospel is good news because the greatest need of mankind for all of us is that we would be recipients of that kind of righteousness, that we are deserving of much greater judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah even had. And why is that important to grasp? Because so often we jump to the judgment of chapter 19 and saying, die wicked people, and we forget that we're amongst them. That God in his mercy showed his kindness to us. And he is leading us to use that same foundation to take a hope of message of the gospel to those who have yet to hear. I can't think of anything more encouraging at the same time, but yet sobering. That the gospel is before us. That we look at those who do not know and we see the judgment that awaits them. So that should convict us towards not taking the path of silence, but at the same time to be encouraged because we know that God will avenge 
our lives in the gospel, when we are mistreated, when we are uh, uh, spoke down upon and God's word is reviled before our very eyes, we know that God will bring that to pass. Why? Because he's a just God. And so in the words of Abram, will God not do that which is just? And the answer is amen. Abram, I will not destroy one righteous person. Isn't that the truth of the gospel? That's a security that we should rejoice in as Christians, that the fires of God have been diverted away from us, and yet they did not go to the wicked. They went to his son. God himself saved you from his own wrath. That is the gospel. This is why it's exceedingly good. And yet that same wrath abides, as we know from Romans chapter 1, upon all who do not believe. Great theology, great truths, great application. And, and yet it, it, it suffices for us to look there and worship because of his great kindness to us. And we will see as we continue to look at the book of Genesis that this is a great urgency, but a great humbling amongst God in his character and his holy providence in our lives. Oh, dear saint, trust the Lord in what he is doing. Nothing surpasses his knowledge. You've been mistreated, it will be judged. If you are feeling that you are uh, fighting an unjust battle at work or in the home or with a relationship or with an employer, God sees it and he will make it right. Maybe not on your terms, but he will make it right. And consider how God is using such circumstances to promote the gospel in the midst of that situation because he already has you full and secure. And so why can't we be reviled? Why can't we even have loss in this life knowing that which is to come? How can we not courageously go into the future knowing that God has us and that we are secure in him? And for those who do not know the Lord, oh, that they would repent. Oh, that they would look in faith faith to the face of the Lord Jesus Christ who is willing and mighty and strong to save. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. Our knees shake just reading it with holy reverence for a God who has been offended by sinful man. And the understanding of the sinfulness of man comes right out of these pages. And we see ourselves there. And yet we are amazed that you would call us out from amongst the world to be your people. And Lord, we know that you're gonna completely deliver us when you return. That while you've delivered us from great enemies like Satan and his powers, our own sin as we see it put to death each day in our lives by your Holy Spirit, as we are convicted of it, God, we're confident that you are mighty to save us. And yet, a world is destined for destruction, and you've given us the word of truth, your gospel, to take to them, to call many to repentance and faith, to go into all the world and preach the gospel that others might know you, and to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that you have commanded, because you are with us, 
even to the end of the age. And Lord, we know we live in a sinful age and we long for you to come quickly. But Lord, would you grow us in two ways, in great reverence and holiness in you. And secondly, that you would give us a heart like you have to redeem. And Lord, that you, in your grace, would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and faith to proclaim your gospel to a world that desperately needs you. In Jesus' name, amen.